This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLite. Artist studios, exhibition space, and more. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. After over 100 episodes of Art Curious, I've learned a thing or two about you, the listeners of our show. You're young. You're older. You're artistic. You're nerdy. You know a ton about art. You know nothing about art. You love drama. You love to feel good. Essentially, you are everything. But a large segment of you are enamored of romance, or at least interested in the complexities of human relationships. And you're the reason that this season exists, which I've called modern love. Throughout this season, we are exploring the tumultuous and passionate relationships of some of the most famous artists of the 20th century. From Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera's turbulent marriage to the shattering affair between Pablo Picasso and Dora Maar, we delve into the ups and downs of love in the art world. And today we are enjoying the story of one supremely confident couple incredibly supportive of one another, and individually talented. Two makers who epitomized the explosion of creativity that was the Harlem Renaissance, and who helped shape American art. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. Art Curious Season 13 is all about modern love. And today, it's time to get to know Jacob Lawrence and Gwendolyn Knight. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Jacob Lawrence is one of those artists that, I admit, I did not learn about in school. I don't think that this would necessarily be the case today, but I am middle-aged and I am a product of my own limited education based on what was available to an art history student back in the day. All of this is my way of saying that when I did learn about Jacob Lawrence, a stunning American artist who is by no means a minor figure in our nation's cultural heritage, it was a wonderful surprise. His works were a shock of design, graphics, coloration. I was drawn to his work immediately. I was likewise drawn to the work of the woman whom he married, Gwendolyn Knight, a fascinating and wonderful artist in her own right. But I didn't learn about her until much later either, even later than learning about Jacob Lawrence. Let's hope that you can learn from my late blossoming of interest in both of these artists because they are truly awesome as a couple and as individuals. So let's get into it. 
our story today begins with the birth of a little girl in the Caribbean island nation of Barbados. Gwendolyn Knight was born in Bridgetown, the capital of Barbados, on May 26, 1913, born into a family whom she deemed to be, quote, free thinkers. Her family was mixed race. Her mother, Miriam, was a black Barbadian woman, and her father, Malcolm Knight, was a white Barbadian man. Her parents were loving and strong, but their life wasn't easy at the beginning. Miriam was disabled with an injury that she sustained during a strong hurricane one year, and Malcolm sadly died when Gwendolyn was just two years old. With a deceased father and a disabled mother, Gwendolyn had the odds stacked against her in their small island nation, and her mom wanted more for her than to deal with all that. So when Gwen was seven years old, Miriam convinced her to emigrate to the U.S. with family friends. Gwendolyn Knight settled first with her family friends in St. Louis, where they enjoyed being part of a warm and welcoming black community. And then in 1926, when Knight was 13, her family moved to Harlem, where her creative interest and abilities blossomed during the Harlem Renaissance. It was truly the perfect community for someone like her. She was an avid reader and a lover of dance, theater, opera, and everywhere she went, she was surrounded by creativity. She even lived temporarily in an apartment building on 7th Avenue that was also home to the jazz pianist Billy Strayhorn and the actress and blues singer Ethel Waters. Within this formative and inspiring environment, it's not surprising to learn that Gwen herself eventually gravitated toward the arts. Gwendolyn Knight's first formal study of art was at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where she attended undergraduate studies beginning in 1931 under the guidance of the painter Lois Maylou Jones, herself another awesome figure in art. And she also worked with the printmaker James Wells. Even though those two established and trustworthy professors were supporting her, Knight did note that, unlike male painters, female painters were not taken very seriously at Howard University. Heck, they weren't taken all that seriously anywhere, really, at this time. Because, as we've discussed time and again on this show, to be a woman and to be a professional artist were descriptors that often seemed to be at odds with one another. At least in the minds of some. Unfortunately, though, Knight's time at Howard was cut short because of financial difficulties. The Great Depression, by 1933, had hit full force, and she could no longer afford to stay there. So she returned home to Harlem. The good news, though, is that, again, Harlem was still a magnificent place for Black artists and creators. Knight quickly became a daily participant in the workshop of sculptor Augusta Savage, director of Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, and later the Harlem Community Arts Center founded and funded by the Works Progress Administration. Again, Augusta Savage is another truly awesome artist, so hopefully we can get into her more deeply at a later date. What's important to note here is that Savage became a mentor to Knight, and her studio became a second home. It was also an artistic epicenter, and Savage was apparently connected to everybody. Through Savage, Gwendolyn Knight met writers and poets like Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, Ralph Ellison, and Alan Locke, and artists like Charles Alston, Aaron Douglas, and Romare Bearden, folks who were front and center of the Harlem Renaissance. Like Augusta Savage, 
the artist Charles Alston would play a pivotal role in Knight's life. Because while she was assisting him in a mural project in the mid-1930s, he introduced her to another young up-and-comer. That person was Jacob Lawrence. And that's coming up next. Stick with us over this ad break. And hey, if you want to listen to the show ad-free, join me over on Patreon today for $4, and you'll be all set. Check it out, patreon.com slash arcurious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. Jacob Lawrence was a few years younger than Gwendolyn Knight, but by the time they met, he was already well on his way to becoming a renowned and respected artist. Lawrence was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on September 7, 1917, to Southern parents who had moved north during World War I. For a time, the Lawrence family lived in rural Pennsylvania, but before too long, the Lawrence children were moved to Philadelphia in the aftermath of their parents' divorce. They had called it quits in 1924, when Jacob was seven years old. Like Gwendolyn Knight, he too had a family shakeup and a big relocation at an early age. Jacob Lawrence and his siblings were moved into foster homes, shuttling in and out of other people's lives for almost a decade until they moved to New York and reunited with their mother in 1930, when Jacob was 13. Thanks to the newfound stability of his family life, and probably again due to the relocation to Harlem, Jacob Lawrence flourished in his teen years. Not terribly long after reuniting with his mother, she enrolled him in an after-school art program and had progressed far enough that by the mid-1930s, he was regularly participating in community art programs that garnered some great attention. By 1937, he had secured a two-year scholarship to the American Artist School, a coup brought about with the help of none other than one of his teachers, Augusta Savage. And the very next year, at the age of 21, he secured employment with the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, in their influential federal art project, working as a professional painter in the easel division. One of his influential connections was with Charles Alston, himself the first African-American supervisor for the WPA's federal art project. And it was through Alston's studio that Jacob Lawrence first met Gwendolyn Knight. For Knight, it may very well have been love at first sight. 
or at least some kind of interest in first sight. Many years later, she could recall the moment she first laid eyes on her future husband, noting, quote, He had beautiful skin and long, beautiful eyelashes that anyone would die for. So she found him gorgeous, to be sure. But it wasn't just that. Right away, she sensed a seriousness in him, a dedication to his work that was unlike anything she had yet seen. This focus and intensity was something she witnessed firsthand early on. When they met, Lawrence was in the middle of what would become his first great painting series, a cycle of 41 works depicting the life of Toussaint Louverture, the Haitian general who was one of the leaders of the so-called Haitian independence against French rule, someone who is sometimes referred to as the so-called Black Napoleon. Lawrence was captivated by the experience of African Americans and the African diaspora and sought to commemorate and celebrate the struggles and victories of people like Toussaint, folks who are often, even now, left by the wayside in the historical narrative. So consumed was Lawrence by his painting, by the stories he told on paper and canvas and panel, that he would work even when everyone around him was socializing, even returning to his easel in the midst of a party. To Gwendolyn Knight, this was entrancing and enchanting. The pair quickly became besotted with one another, and in 1941, they got married. Their strong, enduring partnership was just beginning. Jacob Lawrence and Gwendolyn Knight Lawrence eventually became a power couple in the art world, with their working styles and subject matter in a kind of complementary contrast, if that's a phrase, with one another. Lawrence was methodical, precise, and with everything worked out in advance. The grand narrative of cycles like the Toussaint Louverture one expertly arranged prior to the paint hitting the canvas. And it all meant something, you know. It was for the great purpose of highlighting the glories and the injustices faced by Black Americans in particular. Gwendolyn Knight's paintings were lighter in comparison, both in color palette and in subject matter. She liked to sit in homes, people's parlors, painting them, especially women, in everyday settings and situations. But by no means does this make her work less important or less intriguing than her husband's. It's just nice to see that there wasn't competition between one another and that they both came to the art world with different goals and different ideas, both taken equally seriously within the bounds of their friendship and their marriage. Knight's works were important. Lawrence's works were important. And they never let each other forget that. Lawrence was always quick to note this in interviews, too, proclaiming the greatness of his wife's work for their difference as much as anything else. In 1987, he told one interviewer, quote, She's a very lyrical painter, very poetic, very romantic in her painting, entirely different from me. She has the feel of color that is very lyrical and has a certain kind of rhythm. Her approach is feeling out the canvas as she goes, for clothing it with color, with lines and form and dark and light. I can appreciate Gwen because we are so different. Of course, just because the artists were so accommodating and accepting of each other's careers didn't mean that others acted similarly. It will surely come as no surprise to you, dear listeners, to know that Lawrence was more, quote-unquote, successful during his lifetime than Gwendolyn Knight was. 
Not that Lawrence necessarily had it all that easy either, because remember that both of our protagonists here were black, and thus the barriers they faced were significant in comparison with white artists. But Gwen Knight had the double whammy of being both black and a woman, God forbid. So her career was the secondary one in their relationship. And she often subjugated her own work so that she could support his career. Whether or not this was something she wanted to do, or if she felt that she had to do it, is something that I really just don't know for sure. But here, as an example, was the kind of working relationship that Knight and Lawrence shared for a large portion of their marriage. In 1940, Lawrence was awarded a $1,500 grant from the Rosenwald Foundation to paint what would become his seminal cycle, The Migration of the Negro, which we typically refer to today as the Migration Series. And if you thought that the Toussaint Louverture series was big at just over 40 paintings, then this one was even bigger. It topped out at 60 panels, each of which depicted one specific moment in the northward journey of Southern black folks as part of the Great Migration after World War I, one of the largest population movements in U.S. history. And remember, his parents, Jacob Lawrence's own family, was part of that Great Migration. For the massive preparations for this series, Knight assisted her husband in research and even in the writing that accompanied each panel. Once the painting got underway, Gwen Knight often helped with the preparatory work, arranging and covering panels with layers of gesso, which is a kind of support layer made of pigment and glues that act as a base on some paintings. Knight was Lawrence's best assistant and best supporter. But she wasn't just his helper. She also gave him critical advice leading him to make alterations to designs based on her feedback. It was something that Lawrence never took for granted. Even years later, he praised this working relationship, saying, quote, It's a stimulating thing. It's a good thing to have someone like this. I tell all artists this, all young people. It's provocative when you have a person like this whom you respect. And here's the other thing. It worked. Their working relationship worked. So much so that the Migration series is often seen as the pinnacle of Lawrence's career, and one that led to another big milestone. The first solo exhibition by a Black artist at the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA. And for her husband, Gwendolyn Knight was an integral part of this. She had put aside her career and made her husband's work her primary focus, and it showed in his successes. The Migration series, by the way, was jointly purchased by MoMA and the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., so you can see them in both of those locations today. I mentioned in our last episode on the Alberses that we would be returning to Black Mountain College in today's episode. And that's true, even if the college won't be the main focus of our story today. In the mid-1940s, after his success with the Migration series, and after the end of World War II, a time in which Lawrence was drafted into the U.S. Coast Guard as part of the first racially integrated crew on his ship, Jacob Lawrence had reached national attention for his work, and he caught the eye of Joseph Albers. Albers invited Jacob Lawrence to come down to Black Mountain to teach at the school's influential summer program. And it had a lasting effect on Lawrence because it introduced him to teaching, something he grew to love and which he would later return to in the last decades of his life. 
Though they only stayed at Black Mountain for one summer, the summer of 1946, their time there had a lasting impact on them both. For Lawrence, again, it was the teaching, and a teaching style based in no small part on that of the influential Joseph Albers himself. And for Gwendolyn Knight, the campus's encouragement of experimentation, especially in the realm of abstraction, became a new touchstone too. The artists returned to New York after their stint in North Carolina, feeling inspired and refreshed. Not that they'd remain feeling that way. That's coming up next, after one more quick break. Come right back. Welcome back to Art Curious. We all know that looks can be deceiving. Someone can appear to be living their best life, achieving all of their goals and fulfilling all of their dreams, but hating their existence. For Jacob Lawrence, that's what it might have been like at a certain point. On the outside, he was hugely successful, with the national attention garnered for the Migration Series, all the exhibitions, the Guggenheim Fellowship he received, and all the other accolades. Jacob Lawrence had it made. But not long after his teaching stint at Black Mountain College, Lawrence grew depressed, and the situation became so dire that in 1949, Lawrence voluntarily checked himself into a psychiatric hospital in Queens, New York, to seek treatment for what he called exhaustion and tension from overworking. That was probably a huge part of the issue, of course, but there's also the potential issue of FBI surveillance on the couple. As the 1940s melted into the 1950s, the artists, though not members of the Communist Party, were often associated with pals and colleagues who were themselves members. And thus Lawrence and Knight were occasionally hassled for their political leanings and associations. They weren't alone in this, of course. Lots of artists, from Jackson Pollock to Robert Motherwell, also faced surveillance and being deemed so-called security threats. But this, and the persistent systemic racism that the Lawrences undoubtedly faced, pushed Jacob Lawrence to the brink. He ended up remaining in inpatient treatment for a full year with Knight's care and deep support. Speaking of support, she provided for them financially during this time, too, taking a job with the publishing company Condé Nast during her husband's hospitalization, working in their library and magazine archives. She remained with Condé Nast for more than 10 years, thus providing her family with a stable, sustainable income. Just because Lawrence was in recovery didn't mean that he was just lounging around there. He used his time to create works of art depicting his fellow patients, a series fittingly deemed the Hospital Series. Although Lawrence's time at the psychiatric hospital was positive, as he rested and recovered and produced new works, his mental health struggle never really ended, especially as the 20th century progressed. In particular, he felt a kind of internal pressure during the stirrings of the civil rights movement. Despite not considering himself a leader and certainly not a politician, Jacob Lawrence had become one of the leading black artists of his time and was thus highly visible. This meant that he, and perhaps Gwendolyn too, were constantly being hounded to be art world spokespeople for civil rights and to lend their good names and their financial supports to various causes. 
It was exhausting. And that pressure did nothing to alleviate Lawrence's depression. So instead, he did what he knew he could manage, to just focus on painting and to count on Gwendolyn Knight's ongoing love and support. Not that Gwendolyn Knight ever stopped making art of her own. I want to make that clear. She put her artistic career aside for the furtherance of her husband's stellar one, but she never dropped it. And eventually, like many of the hetero couples that we're discussing this season, Knight's time in the spotlight came later in her life. In the early 1970s, the couple moved to Washington State after Lawrence took a job at the University of Seattle, where he remained on the faculty until his retirement in the early 1980s. The geographic shift from New York to Seattle was thus a natural turning point. And with Lawrence now secure in a university position, Knight could now try something new and different. And suddenly, she and her work were everywhere. In Seattle, she joined the King County Arts Commission. She participated on art panels and juries. She found gallery representation in the same gallery as her husband, of course, but still. And she began showcasing her work in group exhibitions. Only a couple of years after their move to the West Coast, Knight enjoyed her very first solo exhibition, which took place at the Seattle Art Museum in 1976. And that was just at the start. From the mid-70s until the turn of the 21st century, her works gained more and more recognition in cities throughout the U.S., And it wasn't just painting that kept her occupied. She made prints. She danced. She found creative outlets in all sorts of various ways. And she thrived, finding the greatest artistic representation of her life. Even after Jacob Lawrence passed away in 2000 at the age of 82, she continued to focus on her art career. And just two years before her own death, she witnessed a career retrospective held at the Tacoma Art Museum in Washington and at the D.C. Moore Gallery in New York. It was, you might say, a pretty good way to go out. Gwendolyn Knight died two years after her retrospective, passing away at the age of 92 in 2005. Next time on Art Curious, it's that age-old story. He sees her as just one thing, a weeping woman, he says. But she, a creator in her own right, is so much more. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Anne Catherine Hughes for her excellent research help for this episode. The Art Curious theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. And our brand new, fabulous logo is by the fine folks at Vaulted. Check them out at vaulted.co. Our podcast is co-produced by Kabunki. Podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. 
home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. And you can also donate and join us tax-free at Patreon for the price of a cup of coffee. Check back with us as we explore some of the most unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful modern art lovers in art history.